Hey there and welcome to the Duncan Pentecostal Church podcast streaming from Vancouver Island here in Canada and however you have found our podcast we're so glad you're here. Before we jump into today's message just a couple things I want to let you know. If you go to our website www.duncanchurch.com you're going to find a couple easy ways where you can connect with us. We have an online connect card you can fill out maybe let us know where you're listening from and check off the option to receive our what's happening email. We send this out once a week. It's a great way to stay connected with everything that's going on here at the church and even online. Apart from that, there is a give button. So if you're feeling led, you can do that right online through our website. You can also find us on Facebook and YouTube. We are so glad you're tuning in and we are believing that God's going to do something special in you through today's message. Enjoy. My name's Ross Brightkreitz. For those of you who may be visiting and don't know, I'm one of the pastors here at DPC, and I'm really glad you guys are here. Uh, a little bit chilly this morning, though, right? I biked here, and I'm not far, and I froze. Um, but yeah, it's a little chilly. But who, I need to know. This is very important. I need to know who, en- who enjoys this fall weather. Put your hand up and keep them up. Who loves the fall weather? Put your hands high in the air. Keep them up. Keep them up. Yeah, I see you. I see you. Get out. (laughs) This is not a safe community for you. This might not be your... I'm joking. Uh, That's just me. That's just me. The fall is the death of the only good thing, and that is summer. Um, So... Uh, Yeah, I'm not a big fan of fall. So another question for you guys. How many of you are planners? How many of you are planners out there? How many of you are planners or like to-do lists, right? Who gets absolute satisfaction from scratching something off of their to-do list? Yeah, I'm one of the people who, like, if I mix something extra in there, I then go and write it on my to-do list just to scratch it off. What a sense of accomplishment. I love that. I knew I would be amongst friends there. So if we don't like fall together, we can love to-do lists. And so that's me. But does anyone here, do you ever like assume you're going to accomplish more in a day than you actually will? Like I do that probably daily, right? I have my little to-do list of what I need to get done. And all of a sudden, I don't know how many times I'm at church and I'm like, what time is it? How is it like one? How is it two already? Like I haven't got any of the things that I wanted to accomplish done. So I can get into a lot of trouble with just like having all these things that I want to do uh, and it can seem overwhelming. And this is especially true, my wife could attest to this, when we are going away. Like if we are going on, and when I say away, I mean like I would probably say anything that's over a two-night getaway from our house. I always have a massive to-do list the day we're leaving because when we get home, I want the vacation to continue. Like, our house needs to be spotless. Is there anyone else? Is it just me? I am OCD, so it might just be me. And also, I will say this. It's not like our house needs to be spotless when we get back, and I, like, point at my wife, and it's an expectation. I put that on me. Like, you can go talk to her. I want to, like, wash all the floors. The bathroom has to be, like, scrubbed and spotless. I, like, if we're pulling out of the driveway and there is one sock in the hamper, it will, like, drive me insane. It will ruin my trip. And also, when we get home that first night, it's clean sheet night. Come on. Who loves clean sheet night? Am I the only, like, old person here? 
Clean sheet night is the best, okay? So when we're going on trips, I'm always like, I have this huge to-do list, and it's really daunting, and I do often accomplish it. But sometimes I bite off a little bit more than I can chew. Now, the reason I'm telling you all that is because I have a confession. And to quote Britney Spears, oops, I did it again. Because this morning, I have a lot that I want to cover with you guys. I want to take us, not just from Hebrews 9, because that's where we are this morning, but I want to take us all the way to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 18. And we will cover every single verse on our way, but this is what I want to do this morning. So, I believe we can do it. Let's get to work. And where we need to begin our message this morning is, if you've ever heard me preach, you would know that I do this every single time. We have to recap. We have to go back and we have to take a look at what has been said previously that's led into what is now being said in the Bible, like what the writer is saying right now. And here's why, and you've probably heard me say this as well. Since we arrived in Hebrews chapter 7, Hebrews chapter 7, 8, 9, and then 10 up until verse 18, it is all like the same conversation. I would encourage you after the message today or sometime this week, go home, sit down, and just read chapter 7, 8, 9, up to 10, 18, all together, because you're going to see it is one succinct, flowing argument. It is just building and pointing and reiterating and driving home and sometimes repeating the same points and the same themes over and over and over again. So, we're just going to jump back and take a look at this conversation, this argument that our author has been piecing together that actually he kicks off at the very end of Hebrews chapter 6. So at the very end of Hebrews 6, this is what he says. He says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf, and he has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So this is the launching point. This is almost like the thesis statement that our author makes and then goes on to defend through chapter 7, 8, 9, and into 10. Because what he's saying from this is that he's going to showcase who Jesus was, how Jesus was a high priest. Because in that verse, he says he entered into that inner sanctuary. He went beyond the curtain. And, and we're going to talk about this this morning. That means he entered into the place in the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest could enter once a year. And that is where the presence of God rested with the people. So our author is saying, Jesus did this, so now he has to defend, well, how did Jesus do this? How was Jesus a high priest? What temple did he enter into? And all of these things. So these are like the conversations that our author is having and arguing over the coming chapters. And a topic, as I just mentioned, that is central throughout all of these chapters and is going to be central this morning is exactly that. It is the thought and, and the reality that Jesus entered into into the Holy of Holies. 
This is going to be a very key theme throughout this, in all of these chapters and for us this morning, that Jesus has entered into the inner sanctuary, that place where God's presence remained, where only one man could ever enter, and he did it through sacrifices, and he did it with fear and trepidation. Uh, I read again this week that they would tie like a rope or a chain around the high priest's ankles just in case he didn't do everything right, and he dropped dead inside the Holy of Holies. Then they could pull him out. So this is the place where Jesus has entered, as our author says, on our behalf, which then also would mean because in order to enter, you would require a sacrifice. So these are all things that this passage is talking about. So our author's discussing this throughout these chapters, and now today our author is going to come to the end of this discussion. He's going to bring us to the conclusion regarding the fact that what Jesus did through his death and resurrection was far greater and is superior to a religious sacrificial system that had been around for over a thousand years. He accomplished in three days what no number of men, and I believe it was around 84 high priests, what no 84 high priests and innumerable other priests with them could accomplish in over a thousand years. He did it in three days. Days. So this is what our author is talking about. So in our passages that we're getting into this morning, what he's going to do, what we're going to see here is a very quick, very, very quick, very brief kind of summary overview of the layout of the tabernacle, talk a little bit about its function, and then he's going to compare it to the sacrifice that Jesus offered. So if you haven't done so already, grab your Bibles. We are in Hebrews chapter 9. This is going to be our launching point where we start. And uh, the message this morning is just simply going to be titled, Access Granted. Access Granted. So let's pray quick. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you for this morning. And we thank you for your word, Lord God. And sometimes it feels silly that I even come and preach and expound on it because your word is so powerful all on its own. So I pray that what resonates this morning isn't the filler, the add-ons that come from Ross, but it's just simply the truth of your powerful word. Lord God, may that be what resonates and lands on hearts and minds. It's the only thing that can do that. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, starting in Hebrews 9, we're going to just go to verse 10 to get started. Here we go. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bed. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, or the holy of holies, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. The Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the Covenant. Above the Ark were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything was arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. So that he's saying in the first room, they functioned on a day-to-day basis. But only the high priest entered into that inner room, and that only once a year and never without blood, which he would offer for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. 
This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. So, going back and looking at these verses, uh, verses 1 to 7, it's just a summary. All right, that's all it is. It's a really quick summary, bird's eye view walkthrough of the tabernacle. And if you have been attending DPC for at least the last year, we covered this extensively because our sermon series before Hebrews was Exodus. And this is when they got all the instructions for this tabernacle, and we walked through it quite methodically. And uh, so I'm not going to get into that. Actually, I'm going to quote the author here and say, we cannot discuss these things in detail right now. And the reason I'm not going to do that is because that he's clearly saying like that's not the whole point of what we're trying to get to. So I don't want to get caught up on that being a huge focus for us this morning. However, just in case, right, just in case you're here and you don't fully picture or understand what this tabernacle looks like, um, I'm going to show something to you. There's going to be a little clip played, and while it's playing, it's actually a video rendering walkthrough of the tabernacle. I'm going to read these seven verses again while you're watching the video so you can get, you a, get a, a visual for what it would have looked like, all right? So let's get that video... All right, so this was the tabernacle that was set up. That's the outer courtyard. And this is entering into the first room where the lampstand, the table of consecrated bread um, was. And this was called the holy place. So this is what Hebrews said. So the menorah or the lampstand, the table of consecrated bread or show bread. Now pay attention, altar of incense. It's in the first room. We're going to talk about that. Now, this would be entering into the Holy of Holies. The second curtain was a room called the Most Holy Place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. The Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. And above the Ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. All right. So, like I said, those verses are just a summary of that. That's what that is. But you probably noticed. Did you notice something there? There's a contradiction. There's a contradiction between that layout that they designed that off of what Exodus says and what Hebrews says. Because in Hebrews, it tells us that the most holy place, so the holy place, it says, which had the golden altar of incense. But it didn't. There is nowhere, anywhere in the Old Testament where it says the golden altar of incense was inside the Holy of Holies. So why the contradiction? And I want us to know this because I discovered this week online, this is a point that some people will say the Bible is a contradiction. It says this, but it, doesn't, it never says that. It's just lying, and they will try and use it to argue and disprove the authority of Scripture. So I want you guys to understand what our author is saying because it does seem confusing because you saw from that video, right, that altar of incense was just in front of the curtain. So what is our author trying to say? Well, first of all, if you look at verse 2, where it's discussing the articles that were placed in the holy place, so in the first room, well, the Greek word that they use to refer to like the things that are in that room, it actually literally means within. 
Like it's actually referring to a physical location. However, in verse 4, I don't know exactly what it says in your Bible, but my wording is a little different when it's discussing the most holy place. And that's because the word that they are using, the author uses at this point, is a different Greek word for referring where something is, and it's a Greek word, echoyusa. And that word doesn't necessarily specifically mean this is the physical location where something is located. It actually, by definition, is used to explain that something might belong to or is closely associated with something. Okay? So what our author is trying to do is he's trying to show that there is a very, very, very close association between that altar of incense and the most holy place and the holy of holies. Now, the Jewish people who had been reading this and who grew up understanding and knowing the Old Testament and uh, temple worship, they probably would have known this, and they also would have known that what our author is specifically talking about is the Day of Atonement. So when I mentioned to you earlier in the sermon already that the high priest one time a year enters into the Holy of Holies, into God's presence, that was on what was called the Day of Atonement. And our author is trying to showcase that when he's talking about the temple and its function, he's actually kind of specifically pointing everyone to the marquee day in Jewish celebration, which is the Day of Atonement. He's saying, let's take a look at the function on the Day of Atonement, because it is the key day for the Jewish people. This is what he wants to talk about. And he already referred to it, as I showcased, at the end of Hebrews 6, right, when he says, Jesus went behind the curtain. So he's saying, this is what he wants to be talking about. So... Uh, a couple things to note. How is it so closely associated then? How is this altar of incense that's physically outside the holy place associated so closely with the holy place? Well, first on the Day of Atonement, both the ark and the altar of incense would be sprinkled with blood. Okay, They would be atoned for with blood. Secondly, it would be the coals and incense from the altar of incense would be taken and they would, they would take it into the Holy of Holies to create like a smoky haze of protection for the high priest while he was in there. So the function of that thing on the Day of Atonement, right, was actually inside the Holy of Holies is what our author is pointing at. And then lastly, the Greek word that we get to translate the word altar, it actually can also mean the word censer. Because the way that the coals were taken from the altar of incense and the incense was taken from the altar of incense and the way it was taken into the Holy of Holies was with a censer. And it was like, I don't know, this like swinging Christmas decoration filled with stuff that smoked. And then they'd walk in and they'd smoke the place out. So that is what our author is simply saying. He's saying this really does belong in its function and its purpose and intentionality specifically on the Day of Atonement is here. Now, one thing that's worth noting is that the Day of Atonement is still a huge day today for Jewish people, except it, you might not have ever heard them refer to it as the Day of Atonement. They call it now Yom Kippur. 
So that's what Yom Kippur is today. It is them still recognizing and honoring this Day of Atonement from the Old Testament. And it was actually recently celebrated, I think it was on October 4th and 5th. And this is still today, uh, it is the most holy day for the Jewish people. Right? Because like the, the Day of Atonement, what are some of the themes? What is the Day of Atonement all about? And this is what our author in Hebrews is saying. He's like, hey, let's talk about the Day of Atonement. Let's talk about what it means. Let's talk about what happens on that day. Let's talk about what it represents. Let's talk about the sacrifices that need to be offered in order for that day to take place. Let's talk about what is required to step into, to be granted access, to enter into the presence of the Most Holy God. This is essentially what he's saying. He's like, these are the themes of the Day of Atonement. Let's talk about that. And it's crazy because those are still the themes of Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year. It is the day of the year where the Jewish people today here on earth believe they are the closest to God they will ever be, is on Yom Kippur. And it is also the day that God forgives their sins. These are still the themes of this day. Which is like, it's just been crazy to me as I've been studying this and studying what they, how they view this day and then like looking at what Jesus fully accomplished. I'm like, how are you not just like jumping on the Jesus train? Like, this is so much greater, which is the whole point that our author is getting to. And so, I love what verse 8 says. After our author outlines all this, outlines the tabernacle, he says this, The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed. Do you know what that means? Like, do you know what our author is saying? He is saying that has always been the whole point. He is saying that the whole point, the whole time, was to bring us into that place, was to invite us, was to get us into the most holy place, meaning the whole point, the whole time, what the Holy Spirit was after, what God was after, what Jesus came to accomplish, was to bring us into God's presence. This is what our author is saying. He's pointing out that the purpose of atonement wasn't just to forgive our sins. That was not the end game. The end game was to forgive our sins so that we could be brought back into relationship with Jesus Christ and with God. That is the point of all of this, so that we could be granted access to our Creator. This is what God has always been about. Right? He, he, he wasn't just interested in saying, hey, do this religious practice because you're a bad person and you do bad, naughty things. And I want you to feel better about yourself. Like, that is not the point. He has zero desire in just making us feel better about ourselves, right? It's not like he's just like, hey, I want you to do this thing because you have a potty mouth on the golf course. And that's the Holy Spirit convicting me personally. Uh, but, no, God is not after that. He's after cleansing us so holy that we can walk into his presence and remain there and be there. Like, if I, I'm sorry, but, like, if you are in it just to uh, have your sins forgiven and to feel better about yourself, you're falling short of what Scripture really wants for you. God wants an intimate, deep relationship with you to do amending, cleansing, and changing work in your heart. That is what he is after. He wants us in his presence. He wants us to understand that we are so thoroughly cleansed that we can enter boldly and confidently into where he is. 
like daily, regularly, every morning, every afternoon, wherever we are. Like, I love that. I love that he loves you and he does all of this work to draw you into his presence and he equips you. He equips you and makes you worthy of being there. I think that's incredible. Like, have any of you ever been somewhere where you at the valet park? If you ever had to been to an establishment, maybe a hotel or a restaurant, and you had to valet park, because I accidentally did once, and I didn't feel equipped to valet park. I was horrified, actually. I actually intended to drive a couple blocks away and then walk to meet my cousin, and somehow I couldn't change lanes, and me and my ratchet car ended up in the valet parking lane and it was too late, I couldn't go back, so I overpaid for parking and I tipped very well because I was mortified for the person who had to drive this car. And that's because this was, so after my third major vehicle accident, I decided I'm safer on two wheels than four, so I bought a motorbike, which I've never crashed, so I was right. And I also, if you've ever had a motorbike as your main form of transportation, you would know there still are times where you need a vehicle. Luckily for me, there was one that my family had kind of floating around. Now, I'm going to say this as graciously as I can and as honoring as I can, but it's the truth. We got it from a family member who probably lived on his own far longer than he should have. And when he would drive this car, there would be accidents, but not like the car crash accident kind, like the kind that were strictly located on the seat of the car. Okay, get, get what I'm, let me put it this way. The vehicle was a Buick Lucerne, an old ratchety Buick Lucerne that my friends and I came to affectionately refer to as the Buick Latrine. Okay, that was this, and so I'm like rolling into this really nice establishment, and I am mortified. Like, just, I don't belong here. I'm unworthy. Like, that's what I'm feeling. But could you imagine, like, if I had been gifted a Ferrari? I would roll in with, like, a little bit more confidence, right? I would probably roll in with some boldness, maybe even, like, a little bit of swagger. Because I would feel like I was adequately equipped to be in that place right? Like walking with, like, think about it, like you walk with confidence. Have you ever thought about the fact that that's what Jesus did for you? That's what God wanted to do for you? Because I, th even myself this week, I was like, I know that the Bible says I can come boldly before you, but I don't know if I always have. It's like, I haven't been, I haven't fully comprehended how equipped I have been to enter into his place. I don't think I've walked that way. Like, I would walk with more swagger because I own a Ferrari than I walk with because I have the Holy Spirit in me? How does that make sense? This is what Jesus did for us because all along, God is just wanting to draw us into his presence and to equip us to do this. And we need him to do it, right? Because trying to approach him on our own efforts and our own works, Scripture says, it's like filthy rags. It's like the latrine. That's what it is. But he equips us to walk into his presence when we approach God with confidence, we do it because he made us able to. And why did he do it? Simply because he wants us there. This is where he wants us. And this is what sets Christianity apart. 
right? This is what sets Christianity apart. This is what sets the God of the Bible apart from like all other gods, I would say, in the world. Because God, he wanted us not to, as I said, merely feel good about ourselves. He wanted relationship. Like that was the whole point. He doesn't just want penance. He doesn't just want alms. He doesn't want sacrifices and offerings and all of these things. That's not what he wants. He wants our hearts and he wants relationship. He doesn't want pageantry. He wants intimacy. This is what he has always been after. This is what the verse is showing that the entire time Throughout all of the Old Testament, God's communicating the place he wanted his people to be, the place he was working to invite us into, was into that most holy place. In his presence, he invites us to encounter him, and that is when we change. I mean, I know it was two weeks ago when we were on the, in the Hebrew series, but I asked, for those of you who were here, I said, how many of you had an encounter with Jesus and, like, you changed, right? And, like, in the second service, because they're usually more lively and like interactive, almost all the hands went up. And I loved it. And I even said, I was like, everyone look around. Like if you look around right now, I want to do it right now. If you encountered Jesus in your life and somehow something changed in you, like an appetite, a desire was changed, put your hand up. Guys, you should put them up and then look around because this is evidence of the living God in our lives. Is that not amazing? And I didn't share this back then, but I'm going to share it now because this last week I was out for lunch with some people from the church and we got to talking about high school. And um, I just quickly mentioned how, what a horrible human I was in high school. Like I was a nightmare. I was the worst. Like, Teachers didn't want me in their class. I was just, I'm not going to get into details. I was just a really bad student. But, but in the summer between grades 11 and 12, I encountered Jesus. And I went back to school in September. And I got to tell you, I did not go back to school and be like, I'm going to be a good little soldier. And I'm not going to do this. And I'm like, I just went back to school. I had no objective in my mind. I literally just went back to school. I felt I did. I felt very much like I was the same guy, the same jock, the same dum-dum that I'd always been. And in the first week of school, two teachers who had taught me since grade eight came, came and pulled me aside separately, and they said, what happened to you? They said, what changed? One teacher even said to me, she said, um, Ross, if you know or suspect that the Ross I knew since grade eight is going to surface again, could you give me advance warning? Le legitimately, I could take you to Madame Shafe's house right now, and she could attest to this. But that was because I was changed. Like, you can't encounter the real living God and not be transformed in some way or another. And I didn't, wasn't even fully aware of what had changed inside me because this is what God has always been after. He's always wanted us in his presence. This is what these first 10 verses are trying to highlight. And when we meet him, we'll change. And now our author moves into the following verses to discuss what was required. Like, what did it take for Jesus to enter into God's presence? What does it look like for us to do that? So Hebrews uh, verses 11 to 15 
When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Just pausing for a second. We talked about this uh, the last time we were in our Hebrew series in more detail, uh, but it's that how the earthly tabernacle, right, it is a shadow, like the one that we saw in the video, it's just a mirror, it's just a replica of the original one that is in heaven. And that is the tabernacle, this is saying, where Jesus served and where his sacrifice was accepted and he entered as high priest. So just going to touch on that quickly. Continuing. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially, ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more than will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Simply put, the old sacrificial system was never able to accomplish what Jesus did because what Jesus did is permanent. It is permanent. This is something that our author is trying to drive home. In the entire letter of Hebrews, the word eternal is going to be used six times, but it is used three times in four verses right here. Do you think he's trying to communicate something? Yes. yes, you should be nodding. Yes, I do think that, Ross. I do. Yes, he is. He is trying to communicate the lasting work of Jesus in comparison to the thousand plus years of sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. That was not the solution. He is talking about the finality of what Christ has completed, how it is permanent, lasting, and once and for all. Now, I don't want to open up a can of worms and start a bunch of arguments, but so just bear with me here. But listen to this. Every year, and this has been for many, many years, right? People are encouraged to get a flu shot, right? They're just get a flu shot. But here's the thing. You could get your flu shot and you could still get sick. There's no guarantee. Could you imagine if, though, there was an option to just get one shot at some point in your life and never get the common cold ever, ever, ever again? Like, ever. No more congestion, no more scratchy throat or uh, headaches, achy bones, fatigue, sweating, whatever your symptoms will be. Um, Mine generally are I get congested and then I mouth breathe and then oh, my wife can't sleep at night and then she wake, I wake up and she's in the guest room and I feel even worse. That's what happens to me. Could you imagine if there was one shot and it was like you will never, ever, ever, ever taste a common cold again? Like this is, it's, it's pathetic. It's a pathetic analogy. I'm aware of that because it so pales in comparison. But this is what Christ did. He's like, you are every, yearly, right? And that's the thing. Yearly, these people did the Day of Atonement as a reminder of you are full of sin. 
Now Jesus comes and says, you don't have to do that anymore. I've done it once and for all. I've, been, I've given you the answer and the solution. He has completely covered it for us. He put the end to all other efforts, the fullness and fi- finality of what Jesus did compared to the Old Testament, compared to the tabernacle, is what our author is highlighting. This is why he says, If the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, if that sanctifies them so they're outwardly clean, how much more the blood of Jesus? Now, to help us understand this, it's worth knowing that under the Old Testament law, if an Israelite came in contact with a dead body, they would be ceremonially unclean for seven days. And the law said, like the actual remedy for this would be to mix together the ashes of a heifer with some water. And then on the third day and the seventh day, these people would be sprinkled with this mixture, and then they would be deemed cleaned at the end of it. And our author is simply saying, think about it for a second. If heifer water does that, How much more thorough and cleansing is the blood of the sinless lamb, Jesus Christ? Like, wrap your... This is what he sees, like, guys, if that worked, this is way better than that. His blood fully atones for sin. All other sacrifices he's been saying throughout this have just been a reminder to the people of their sin. Their annual reminder. Like who gets their annual or even like every six months? You ever get that postcard in the mail from the dentist? It's time to visit the dentist. The Jews, it would be like them getting the postcard and be like, it's time to remember how much you suck. It's time for the day of atonement where you are acutely aware of how full of sin you are. Like, who likes, who would love that? Who would love to just have their annual sins just rubbed in their face? This is what it's saying. This is how the old sacrificial system worked. They were chained. Until Jesus, they were chained to this reminder. And that's the best part, is that Jesus comes and he frees them. Not just from this practice, but from sin completely. He eradicates it. Our author's going to highlight this at the end of our section. But he tells us we are free. We are now free from sin. Now, don't get me wrong. That doesn't mean the enemy doesn't want to remind you of it. Oh, there's nothing he loves more than bringing up what Ross did last week or last month or even 10 to 15 years ago. But I learned a trick a number of years ago, and I will encourage you to do this. When Satan wants to remind you where you've been, you just remind him where he's going. Because Jesus has conquered it all through his death and resurrection. We are free. This is our eternal inheritance. Now, I just want you to like think about that word, inheritance. Think about what comes to mind, because this word is like one of the key ones to transition into our next passages here as our author discusses this in a different way. Hebrews uh, verses 16 to 28. So remember, he just said inheritance. Well, in the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when someone has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. 
When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and the branches of hyssop, and he sprinkled the scroll and all of the people, and he said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin." It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with a better sacrifice than these. So he's saying Jesus goes in and he purifies the heavenly things with a better sacrifice. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence, nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that's not even his own. Then Christ would have to have suffered many times since the creation of the world, but now he has appeared once for all at the end of the age to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Going back and looking at this section of verses, as I mentioned, uh, we need to remember our author just mentioned that we have an eternal inheritance, right? He had just said this eternal inheritance, and then he shifts into talking about a will. And as you are probably all aware, if someone has a will, that means there is likely someone in that will who is about to receive an inheritance. And our author is saying there was a similar exchange with the covenant. When God gave the covenant, which essentially was his will for the people, right? He gave them this will, and it was his desire for us to follow it out. It was God's will for us to be drawn back into relationship with him. So our author is saying we could think about the covenant similar like a will because there were things that we were going to inherit. There were things that God had for us. However, it was contingent on us revealing to God, right, in it. We had to show him, hey, we love you, we honor you, we respect you, we want the things you have for us. And guess what? We know this. They didn't do that. We don't always do that. We don't always do that to God. Like, if you think about it, if you just think about in just completely earthly terms, and this is exactly what Jesus did in a parable, what if you were born into a very ridiculously wealthy family, and you knew you had a huge inheritance coming, and you, like, rejected your parents, you had disdain for them. You didn't like them. You turned away. You completely disowned your parents. They would have every single right to write you out of that will. And this is what we have done to God through sin in our lives. And he has sent Jesus to call us home because that's where God has always wanted us. A good parent, even in that situation, their heart would still ache. Even if they knew their child was being a knob, they would go, I just want my child home. 
That is what a good parent's heart desires. This is what God has always desired for us. So Jesus comes and he dies to forgive us of our sins, to invite us back home and make us sons and daughters once again. And we are now inheritors of this eternal will. This is what our author is trying to explain, that because of Jesus, our access has been granted. You know, I like the way the message translation of the Bible actually sometimes words the scripture because it's almost like a commentary in Bible all at the same time because it just lays things out so clearly. So the message translation puts it this way. Like a will that takes effect when someone dies, the new covenant was put into action at the death of Jesus. His death marked the transition from the old plan. Even the first plan or covenant required a death to set it in motion. After Moses had read out all the terms of the law, he took the blood of a sacrificed animal and in a solemn ritual sprinkled the documents and the people. He did the same thing with the place of worship and furniture. Practically everything in a will hinges on death. That's why blood, which is the evidence of death, is used so much in that tradition, especially when it comes to the forgiveness of sins. What our author is getting at is that very somber reality that the old covenant was initiated with the spilling of sacrificial blood. And he's just affirming that the blood of Jesus is so much better. That a sacrifice has been offered for us and accepted in heaven, in the true tabernacle, right? Like Jesus' sacrifice, it was made here on earth, but it is the basis for his continued work that now takes place in the heavenly realm. His one-time sacrifice has been acceptable forever, which is why our author continues to point out that he is now seated, he's not standing, that he is in God's presence, and because of that, he is now our intercessor, our mediator, and our defender. We need a Savior like this. We need a Savior like this because, not to get grim on you, all of us are going to die. I know, no one likes to hear that, but it's honestly the truth. It's the one thing in all of humanity that we share in common. So all of us are going to die, and Scripture says that when we do, we're going to stand before Jesus, and we can either come that day and stand before God all by ourselves with our efforts and our filthy rags, or we can have Jesus represent us as our defender. This is what Christ has done for us. I told you for weeks now, and I've been telling you again this morning, that 7, 8, 9, and part of chapter 10 here, they all should be read together. So to bring us to conclusion on this section, what I want to do now is I want to read Hebrews 10, verses 1 to 18. Now, I'm not going to then pause at the end, come back, and unpack them. And here's why. I firmly believe these verses can speak for themselves. I'm firmly believing that the Holy Spirit can just speak to you. You don't need me to unpack it. And I also want to do this because I believe, as I've been studying, that this is the climax, right? This is what our author has been working towards. This is now his conclusion. After everything, he's going to touch on all of these points that we've been talking about, and he's going to hammer them home so powerfully. So I don't want to get in the way of that. 
So I just want to read God's word to you to bring us to the conclusion of these chapters. And I would just encourage you to look for some of these things. Look, as he mentions that the law is a shadow, bulls and goats are inadequate, that there's a setting aside of the old for the new, that the perfection of Jesus' sacrifice and the finality of what Jesus did. And so since I believe this would have been penned passionately, I believe it would have been delivered with some passion and heart. So I'm going to try and read it that way. I, I did add like a word or two just to like help flow, but it doesn't change what our author is communicating here. And I actually, when I read this, when I come to these verses, I actually read it in my mind as him starting it and by saying, do you see, right? He's like, okay, so you get it now? Because he's trying to bring it all home. So this is how I'm going to start reading 10 verses 1 to 18. So do you see? The law was only a shadow of the good things that are coming. It was not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifice repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? The worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices couldn't do that. They are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into this world, he said, he made it clear that this is true by saying, sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. And then Jesus said, here I am. It's written about me in the scroll, and I have come to do your will, to bring us in to the will of God. First, Jesus said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings, sin offerings, you do not desire, nor are you pleased with them, even though the law required them to be made. He's not pleased with them because they do not satisfy his will. Then Jesus said, here I am and I have come to do your will. And it's always been God's will for us to receive full pardon for our sins and draw us back into his presence. Jesus sets aside the first covenant to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But when this priest, Jesus Christ, offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he awaits for his enemies to be made his footstool because by one sacrifice, he is made perfect forever, those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to this by saying, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain and he washed it white as snow. Our author is saying that it is finished. It is done. That all these things, this repetition, these bulls, these goats, these animals, it's over. You don't need to do it anymore. There is no longer a need for any sacrifice for sin. Note what he's saying is there's no more blood is required. 
There is no more blood is required. There is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood, and there's no more blood required. And I have to think this must have been a remarkable concept for anyone who grew up Jewish and had attended any sacrifices at the temple. Because you need to know how violent that scene must have been. I don't know about you, but I've grown up kind of like whitewashing it, right? Like, oh, like maybe it was just like a little spurt of blood and they'd probably catch it in a bucket and it would all be clean. It's like, it was disgusting. I don't think on those days the priest looked anything like you and I often picture them. They would have been covered head to toe in blood. I would actually assume that at some point they even were slipping. Because that's how much blood was being drained. Lots and lots of blood. And as I've said earlier, you'd have to think at some point in the sacrificial system, these people must have looked around and thought to themselves, there has to be a better way than this. Like, this can't be the only way. In the message translation of Hebrews 10.3, it says, instead of removing awareness of sin, when those animal sacrifices were repeated over and over, it heightened awareness of guilt. So you would think after a thousand years of your awareness of guilt heightening, you'd be like, can we go another direction for once? And that was Jesus. And all I want you guys to understand is that these people would have been so acutely aware of what was required to enter into God's presence. Blood and sacrifice. These people would have been acutely aware of what their sin led to because that's what these days did. That's what these days of atonement revealed. That the price had to be paid. The high priest didn't enter on his own accord. A sacrifice had to be made with blood. And that was what was paid in order for him to approach and enter into God's presence. And this is what Jesus came to do. Because the Bible says there's no forgiveness without blood. So Jesus died. And that can sound twisted. Like that can, I know there's people who are just like, oh, why would God do that? He's so sick. He's so vindictive. No, he's not. It's literally, in my mind, simple math. Sin leads to death. It's that simple. God never wanted death. Original creation in the garden, no death. We gave it life. And now God is saying, simple law is this. When sin leads to death, you, that's what you deserve. Right? That is the wage that we earn. The wages of your sin. So it's like a wage. And I said this before in a sermon. What do you get? It's your wage. You've worked all week long to get your paycheck. Your paycheck is your wages. That's what we work for, is death in our lives, in our sin. The wages of sin is death, Scripture says. So it's not bad. It's the same thing as like you go out and you speed constantly, you will get a speeding ticket. And you might not like it, but that's the truth. If you break that law, that's what you get. The price has to be paid. The penalty has to be paid for. And Jesus comes and he pays the penalty for us. He dies for our sins. And it's because of this, we've been given this eternal gift from God. Bible scholars refer to what Jesus did as substitutionary atonement. 
Substitutionary atonement is simply saying Jesus died in your place. Substitutionary atonement is saying that there was a substitute who atoned for us. And I can't imagine what this must have been like for the Jewish people, knowing how gruesome the sacrificial system was at times. Do you know that on one day, um, Solomon, when his temple was built, it says that he sacrificed, it was, I think, over 20, it was 22,000 head of cattle and 120,000 sheep were offered as a sacrifice. I did the math on this because I'm kind of visual. And so I did some research, and in a, a smaller bull or cow, there's about 40 liters of blood per bull or cow. And in a smaller goat or sheep, there's about one to two liters of blood. So on this day, there was uh, one million liters of blood in these animals. That is, Olympic swimming pool is 2.5 million liters. So just picture a million liters, Olympic swimming pool, of blood from these animals. That's why it's also said that there was a trough. There was a sacrificial plumbing system that would take the blood from the temple into the Kidron Valley. These people were acutely aware of how, of what sin cost, what it led to. Sin leads to death and a lot of blood. They were acutely aware of this, and now Hebrews is telling them one man died, and his blood is greater than a million cows, than 40 million liters, than 100,000 Olympic swimming pools filled with blood. Jesus died for us. And our sins are forgiven. It is finished, as he said. I want to ask the worship team to come back up here this morning. And I'm going to prepare to wrap up. And as I do, I just want to share quickly about my week that I had. Some of you may know, some of you may not. Uh, but... This last Monday at around 11 o'clock at night, I flew out to Calgary. I slept for a couple hours, and then I got picked up by my dad. Then I drove nine hours to Estevan, Saskatchewan, to attend the funeral of Ben Gustafson. Now, if that name remotely sounds familiar, it's because we've been praying for him here since spring. And Ben Gustafson is the father of my best friend. Now, I'll actually say he's the father of my second family, because I fear that when I just say friend, you're actually going to downplay what these people mean to me. And I'm telling you this because what I witnessed this last week is a family standing on the truth of what we're talking about this morning. What I witnessed this week was some of the people that I love most in the world stand there five feet away from their dad, their husband, their grandpa, their father-in-law, their hero, five feet away in an open casket. And I watched them with their hands high in surrender to their king because they were living out the truth and the reality of what Hebrews tells us. They were living out the truth and the reality that Jesus died for my sins. That Jesus died for the sins of Ben Gustafson. And because of that, in that moment, yes, it was sad, but they knew he was one step closer to that eternal inheritance that he has been promised. 
And I watched them praise the Lord with absolute reckless abandon. I've watched this come to life in a way like I have rarely seen Scripture jump off a page. I watched it this past week as my friends and people that I love so dearly proclaimed and professed that Jesus paid it all. And they were so boldly and confidently able to stand there and go, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? This is what Jesus has done for us. This is what you receive by the forgiveness of your sins and entering into the presence of the Heavenly Father where He wants you to be. He wants to forgive your sins and draw you to Himself and one day ultimately call you home. And on that day, if your faith is in Him, you can rejoice. You know, I would... I would be a pretty horrible person, I gotta be honest, to encounter a moment like I just had this past week and not offer you that same hope. Because I don't know you all. I don't know where all of you are at in your hearts. I know some of you come on a regular basis, but that doesn't mean I'm sorry that you are sold out, that your faith and your confidence is in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. And if I get up here and I hold this mic and I say, I preach and I share the word of God because I care about my audience, I would be lying if I didn't offer you the hope that I watched this family walk in this past week. So I want to do that this morning. That's what I want to share with you is the hope that I saw them move in. You know, I love, yes, we are called to share our faith, absolutely. But I love how 1 Peter 3 says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. I heard a pastor this last week on the radio say this. He says, that's what we should be sharing. We should be sharing our hope because people are hungry for that. And so if you're here this morning and you're hungry for hope, I got to share it with you. I got some hope for you to take this morning. And that is the hope of Christ's death and resurrection. So I'm going to invite you right now, right where we are, will you just close your eyes? Will you bow your heads? Will you honor those in this room, in this place right now? And if you're online, I just want to say to everyone listening, if you are here and you are feeling that pull, you're feeling that tug, maybe you're even feeling confused. You're like, why am I crying? Why am I feeling drawn this way? I'm just going to make it very clear. That is God. That is the Holy Spirit. And he is calling you to himself into the Holy of Holies where he has always wanted you. So with all your heads bowed, if you're here this morning and that's you and you're saying, I want that hope, I need this hope, would, would you be bold? Would you just shoot your hand up really quick right where you are? Online, you can send us an email to the church, ross at duncanchurch.com. I'd love to chat with you. We all need this type of hope. I want to pray. Jesus, thank you for everyone here, everyone watching online now or in the future. Thank you for hands that went up. Thank you for hearts that may have been moved online. Lord God, will you fill them with this eternal hope that can only be found in you? Will you draw them to yourself and change them from the inside out? 
Lord God, we stand on the truth of Scripture, and it says if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the grave, we will be saved. So Lord God, right now, any hearts, any mouths that are professing this truth, will you come and change their lives forever? Save those reaching out to you. We pray these things in your precious name. Amen just want to thank you guys all for coming this morning. Uh, I hope you have a great week. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you. Thanks for listening to the podcast from Duncan Pentecostal Church, located here in Duncan, British Columbia, on beautiful Vancouver Island. At DPC, we believe in teaching the whole Bible to build whole believers who can impact the whole world. For more information about us, find us online at www.duncanchurch.com or find us on Facebook and YouTube by searching Duncan Pentecostal Church. Have a great day.